by our awesome God that loved you all the way to the cross. And with that in mind, let's have a word of prayer as we talk to Jesus right now. Lord Jesus, we know you're here. Uh, you've gathered with us. We've gathered in your name, and you're right in our midst. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, that we would open up our hearts to you, God. We want to be like you, Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives within us and strengthens us and convicts us, helps us to grow in our faith. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son as this awesome gift. We commit this time to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, believe it or not, this is our last week of Ordinary Superheroes of the Old Testament. We've done this now for about 10 months, and this is the final chapter. And it's going to be all about uh, understanding a bit about the bridge between the Old Testament and the New, and talking about a man by the name of John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, or John the Forerunner, as he's sometimes referred to. But we began, began in the beginning with Adam and Eve, always a good place to begin, right, is in the beginning. Adam and Eve, and then we talked about Cain and Abel, and then Noah. And remember, again, as we go through this, I want you to know this timeline so you have a better understanding of the flow of history through the Old Testament that led to the coming of Christ, because it is your story. It led ultimately to you coming to faith in Jesus Christ, to you being here today at this church. And after Noah, then we talked about the Tower of Babel, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua, and Caleb, and Rahab, and Joshua, and then Deborah, and Gideon, those judges, right? And then Ruth, this woman who adopted the God of Israel, and then Samuel, the prophet, who anointed King Saul, but Saul was a failure. David was a man after God's own heart. Solomon, the next king, compromised the purity of the nation of Israel, led to a divided kingdom, Elijah was a prophet that stood against the Baal worship in, each, in uh, Israel. Then King Josiah was the boy king who turned the southern king, um, kingdom of Judah around, took all the idols out of the country, and brought the people back to true worship of God. But then after King Josiah, there was not another king that followed after God. So Jeremiah was the weeping prophet who saw Jerusalem destroyed in 586 B.C., and for 70 years, thousands of Jews were marched to Babylon to be slaves in Babylon after being uh, uh, caught in that war and that destruction of Jerusalem. And then we talked about Daniel, the prophet, who prophesied that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. He was a prophet in exile in Babylon. An amazing prophecy and also predicted the coming of the Messiah. Nehemiah. We talked about him last week, one of those amazing builders that rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Today I want to talk about this bridge person between the Old and New Testament. Now actually he's not in the Old, but he's prophesied in the Old. And he is really that bridge between the Old Testament and the coming of the Messiah. If we were to look at the history of the Old Testament in major periods, those periods would be these. I'll start at the wandering in the wilderness after the escape from uh, Egypt, two million people out of bondage. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, Joshua conquers the land in seven. The judges reign in Israel for about 400 years. And uh, we talked about three of them, Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. Then three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, 
reigned in Israel as a united kingdom for 120 years. Then a divided kingdom. Talked about that after Solomon. Kingdom was divided. That's when King Josiah came to reign during that period of the divided kingdom for 350 years. Then we talked about the exile for 70 years uh, that they were in Babylon. And then the prediction that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And the rebuilding happened under people like Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. And then Old Testament ends entering into a period of 400 silent years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Now, it's not that God wasn't involved in the world. He was. He was very involved in what was happening in the world. He was preparing the world for the coming of Christ. In fact, Galatians puts it this way, that Jesus came at the fullness of time. At just the right time, Jesus came. But the Bible predicted there would be a forerunner, someone that would come before the Messiah to prepare the way for the Lord. And John becomes this bridge person between the old and the new. In your Bibles, if you turn to them, and you went to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the great prophet, the Italian prophet, Malachi. Is that his name? No, it's actually Malachi, I know. Malachi, and then the first page of the New Testament, Matthew, it may only be a page or two in your Bible, but in human history, it's 400 years. And I want to talk about that 400-year period so you know how God was preparing the world for the coming of Christ. On the left, you see Malachi. On the right, you see Matthew looking at that gap between the old and the new. And I thought I'd spend some time because I think it's important to understand what happened during that time. And even why we have four different Gospels in the Bible. Why are there four different accounts of the life of Jesus? Well, as we end the Old Testament, Persia is in power. Persia allows people like Zerubbabel to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. But then the Bible ends. Haggai, Zechariah, and the last prophet Malachi come on the scene and the Bible ends. 400 years. No prophet shows up. People wonder, has God forgotten about Israel? No, he hasn't. In fact, during that 400 years, I'm going to talk about three kingdoms that exist known as the Greek Empire. And the leader of the Greek Empire that conquered the land of Israel was a man by the name of Alexander the Average. Exactly, Alexander the Average. No, he was actually great because he was an amazing military leader. In fact, historians say that he died heartbroken that there were no more, quote-unquote, worlds to conquer. He was an amazing leader. And they controlled Israel for a period from uh, 331 B.C. to 167 B.C. The problem was, after Alexander the Great died, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes controlled the nation of Israel. He was a Greek general. And what he did is he came to Israel, he took all the objects of Jewish worship out of the temple and replaced them with Hellenistic, Greek, objects of worship and set himself up in the temple as God. Well, a son of a priest by the name of Judas Maccabeus, they call him Judas the Hammer, used guerrilla warfare to defeat the Hellenistic forces, the Seleucid Empire that Antiochus Epiphanes was leading. And for about a hundred years, under the Maccabean Revolt, Israel was free. 
until another kingdom showed up. And that kingdom, that empire was the Roman Empire. And in 63 BC, they conquered the nation of Israel and began their reign over the country of Israel. And they were in power, obviously, when Jesus was born and when Jesus was crucified. But when you look at those empires, the Greek Empire, obviously Jewish influence was very prominent in the nation of Israel, but also Roman influence now when Jesus showed up. And if you're going to witness to a Greek, for example, or a Jew, or a Roman, you would witness to them very differently. All of them had different mindsets. And I think it's important to cover this, so I want to do that. Here's my uh, uh, representation of a Greek guy. I'll call him Jimmy the Greek, all right? That's Jimmy the Greek. Jimmy the Greek, if you're going to talk to him about Christ, you would need to know this about him. He has no interest in Hebrew genealogy. He doesn't care about whether the Messiah, Jesus, is connected to Abraham. What they are very involved in is the arts and sophistication and education. All the philosophers uh, of the Greek culture had an influence on the world. Three of the famous ones, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And their, their filter for how to develop the world was, does it further culture? and sophistication. If it does, we'll adopt it. If not, we're not going to do it. So the Greek mindset was very different. But the one contribution they made that I think was essential for the spreading of the gospel was the language of the Greek Empire. It became a unifying factor of the Mediterranean world. The language of the New Testament is Koine Greek. What I love about that is it's not the high Greek that's used in books like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. It's the common Greek of the marketplace. The common Greek that was used by people who would trade and buy and sell and live among their neighbors. I think that's a powerful message about He wanted it to go to everyone. And the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. And the Greek language, a major contribution to the spreading of the gospel. Here's another guy, very different from Jimmy the Greek. It's Hosea the Hebrew. Now, Hosea the Hebrew, very involved in the worship of God, very involved in the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch and the law and how to worship God. As you can see on the right, the temple and the worshiping of God. On the left, you see figures that represent how even the Jewish people were divided. There were groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There were people like that guy with the sword, a zealot, who was ready to kill anyone who threatened the freedom of Israel. Then the publican, the tax collector, all part of the Hebrew culture in those days when Jesus came on the scene. But the major contribution of the Hebrews was this, the prophecies that you find in God's word. They are an amazing and awesome confirmation that Jesus is unique in all of history. When you look at the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, we've talked about this, a thread of prophecy, the Messiah is coming, the special one is coming. And when Jesus showed up, those prophecies became an awesome confirmation that Jesus Another influence that obviously was present when Jesus was born and continued throughout his life was the Romans. Here's Romulus the Roman. Much different than Hosea the Hebrew, much different than Jimmy the Greek, right? Romulus the Roman, he didn't care about Jewish traditions. 
All he cared about was who was a threat to the Roman Empire. Who could they dominate next? Who could they defeat next? And they were very interested and involved in, as you can see on the slide, construction. They built amazing buildings. If you've been to Rome, you've seen them. They built roads that connected the Mediterranean world, town with town, all throughout the Mediterranean world. And I believe those roads became the major contribution for the spreading of the gospel. As Paul and other disciples used those roads to bring the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. But all of those different mindsets existed in the nation of Israel. And this is what God did. That's why I love the four Gospels. One of the reasons why I love the four Gospels. It shows you the heart of God by raising up four accounts that beautifully dovetail with one another. No contradictions. Beautifully dovetail with one another, but approach and reach out to all of these different mindsets. Let me go through uh, with you quickly. The first one that we see is the Hebrews. The Hebrews, what was their focus? What was the past? What did God say in his word? How do we follow it? They were very emotional people as illustrated by Judas Maccabeus as an emotional revolt was brought about by Antiochus Epiphanes setting himself up as God in the temple. Judas Maccabeus led this emotional revolt against uh, that, that abomination and the nation of Israel was freed. Their activities were very centered around religion. The authority of their life were the commands of Scripture. What does God's Word say? That was the authority of their life. And their goal was to maintain the tradition that the Old Testament had outlined for them. But there was another group in Israel that was there. And that was the group known as the Romans. They were very involved in the present. As a militaristic people, they were very centered around controlling the will, discipline. Any good military has to be disciplined. Their activities were involved in construction as they uh, dominated the Mediterranean world. Their authority was Caesar, not the commands of Scripture. Whatever Caesar said, that's what they would do. And their goal was the domination of the world. If anyone was a threat to them, they sought to defeat that enemy. But there was another mindset. We've talked about it already. The Greek mindset. The Greeks were very different. They weren't so involved in the past or the present, but the Greeks were very focused on the future. Where are we heading? How are we developing? What philosophies do we need to understand to better develop a sophisticated culture? Their personality, very centered on the mind and education and sophistication. Their activities, education again, teaching people philosophy and language and allowing that language to spread around the Mediterranean world. Their authority was culture. If it was good for culture, it was adopted. If it was not, it was rejected. And then their goal was sophistication, to become sophisticated, not to dominate the world, but become a sophisticated culture. And when Jesus came on the scene and the church began to grow, thousands of believers became this new group of people called Christians, a fourth group that became very present in the nation of Israel. What were Christians like? They weren't so much focused on the past, present, or future. Their focus was eternity, to live their lives according to eternal values. 
Their personality was very directed by the Holy Spirit, not by Caesar or culture, but by the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Their activities were very centered on the revelation of God. If you look at Acts chapter 2, what did the early church do? They met every day at the temple to see how Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament hadn't been written yet in the early church in Acts chapter 2. So they would study the Old Testament day after day in the temple courts, meeting at homes, breaking bread together, day after day, very involved in the revelation of God in His Word and in Jesus Christ. Who was their authority? Their authority, of course, was not commands of Scripture necessarily of Caesar culture, but more Christ, to be like Christ. Yes, as He fulfilled the commands of Scripture, but centrally focused on to be like Jesus. That was their authority. And then their goal was the evangelization of the world. And I think it's amazing how God raised up four different individuals to write four different accounts of the life of Christ, yet without contradiction, a beautiful dovetailing of these four accounts that give us an amazing overview of the most important life that was ever lived. In fact, for the Hebrews, he raised up a man by the name of Matthew, one of the disciples, a Hebrew, The theme of the book is to present Jesus as king of the Jews. He has more quotations of the Old Testament than any other gospel. He brings the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Why is that important? Because if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, he has to be connected to Abraham. So it's a very Jewish-oriented gospel. Mark is very different. That's the second one. God raises up a Roman by the name of Mark to write the second gospel. Mark was probably actually the first gospel written. But it's very different from Matthew. Matthew is like this. Jesus taught this, taught that, taught this, and did this. And then Jesus taught that, taught this, taught that, and did this. Mark is like this. Jesus did this, did that, did this, and then taught this. Then he did that, did this, did that, and then taught this. Mark is very oriented to the activities of Jesus, which perfectly fits the Roman mindset. They're not concerned about the genealogy of Christ. In fact, the genealogy of Jesus isn't even in the gospel of Mark. It's a very action-oriented gospel. For the Greek mindset, God raises up a Greek by the name of Luke, an educated, sophisticated doctor, medical doctor, who writes the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts perfectly matching the Greek mindset of an educated, historical, step-by-step account of the life of Jesus. Well-documented, historically accurate. And then for the fourth group, God raises up the disciple by the name of John, the disciple that Jesus loved. is how John described himself. And he writes the fourth gospel. And of all the Gospels, the Gospel of John is the most family-oriented Gospel. It talks more about the Father and the Son than any of the other Gospels and the family that's created in God. Very family-oriented Gospel. So if you ever wondered, why were there four Gospels? Because it matches perfectly the mindsets that existed in the land of Israel during and after the time of Christ. And a beautiful bridge from the Old Testament to the New. That's what I want to talk about, too, about John the Baptist. As we leave talking about the 400 silent years, and then finally, after 400 years, where no prophet shows up, John the Baptist arrives at the scene. 
and preaches a message of repentance and forgiveness. That if you repent and turn away from your old life and turn to God, you'll be forgiven. And he started to baptize people, thousands of them in Israel. There was a revival in Israel as he did with the prophet Isaiah and Malachi prophesied that he prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. I entitled this talk, and we got to hurry, All for Jesus. So here's the bottom line of John the Baptist. We're going to look at him briefly. John the Baptist prepares the way for the coming of the greatest person to ever live on planet Earth. John's passion to increase the fame of Jesus and point people to Christ makes his life massively significant. If you want to live a significant life, be like John the Baptist, point people to Jesus. Point people to Christ. Make Jesus more famous around you. Help people to understand who this awesome God is that you serve and that you love. See, that's what made John the greatest person outside of Jesus. But Jesus calls him the greatest person ever born of a woman. Jesus was the God-man. But when it comes to normal individuals, John the Baptist, the greatest that ever lived according to Jesus. What made him special? Let's talk about him. John the Baptist was born six months prior to Jesus. His mother was Elizabeth. Right? Probably remember the story when Mary came to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth said, Wow, my baby jumped in my womb when he heard your voice. See, John the Baptist was chosen by God to be the forerunner of Jesus. Mary and Elizabeth were cousins to each other. That made Elizabeth's son John and Mary's son Jesus second cousins related to each other. John born, of course, six months prior to Jesus. John wore clothes that were made of camel's hair, according to Matthew 3, 4. As a diet, here's a great diet, by the way. Um, uh, Daniel Plan, listen up. His diet is this. He ate locusts and wild honey. Man, that would help you to lose weight, amen? Whoa. He ate locusts and wild, I guess he put honey on anything, it tastes like honey. But wow, what a diet. That's what the Bible said he ate. Preached a message of repentance and forgiveness, was beheaded by Herod because of a promise made to Herod's stepdaughter. John stood up to the sin of the day. Herod uh, was a king of Israel who married his brother's wife. And John said that's a sin. He was arrested for it. Herod's wife caused um, her stepdaughter to tell Herod, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter after this stepdaughter had done a dance for Herod. And Herod promised he would give her anything she John was beheaded greatest man that ever lived, gave his life for Christ in prison. But he was an amazing person. And then lastly, I just want to say this. He was the greatest man according to Jesus. Let me show you the verse. Matthew 11, it says this. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. See, John fulfilled two prophecies. One in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3, that says, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord. By the way, when you see the word Lord in all capitals in your Bible, that means in the original Hebrew, the word, the name Yahweh is used. 
So if you see that in your translation, that's why they put it there. If it's in all capitals, the word Yahweh is in the text. Clear the way for the Lord, Yahweh, which is a, another verse for the deity of Christ. Prepare the way for the Lord, Yahweh. He's coming. And then in Malachi, it says this, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. This is right before the 400 silent years. And he will clear the Lord, another name for God, Adonai, whom you will seek, will suddenly come to his temple. The Bible predicted that John would come before Jesus and prepare the way to the Lord. Let me have you turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, let's open it up to John chapter 1, verses 19. We're going to look at one introduction to John the Baptist and why he was so great. You know, it just talked about Jesus being the Lagos in John 1. Then it turns its attention in this chapter to John the Baptist. It says this, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, you, ask him, Who are you? He confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice. And here he is connecting with a prophecy that was well known in Israel. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John would, in another gospel, say, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and what? Anybody know? And fire, which is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost when the church was born. Tongues as a fire descending on the believers in that upper room. The baptism of Jesus is going to be so much greater. I'm baptizing with water, but there's someone coming who's so much greater than I am. The strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me quickly give you a few steps to greatness. I'll have to do this fast. Greatness, step number one. Greatness comes when you put the spotlight and focus on Jesus. It's exactly what John did. It's not about me. Don't worry about why I'm baptizing. There's someone who's coming after me that's so much greater than I am. And Jesus uh, was exactly that, so much greater than John the Baptist. Jesus was God in flesh. John was just an ordinary person that God used. I want to ask you today, if you want to be great in God's eyes, are you putting the spotlight and the focus of your life on Jesus? See, three questions regarding greatness are these. In whose eyes are you great today? Don't be concerned about being great in the eyes of the world. Be concerned about being great in God's eyes. And, and then this, for what purpose are you living your life? For what purpose? And the third question is like, for whose glory? See, if you want to be great in God's eyes, and that's the only opinion we should be concerned about, Riverview, what does God think about you? Don't worry about what your friends think of you. 
don't worry about what your relatives think of you. Are you living your life according to the principles of God's word? Are you seeking to be great in God's eyes? I define greatness as this, living a life of faith that passionately focuses on being faithful to your God, God-given calling and responsibilities as you seek to serve and honor God. Living a life that passionately focuses on being faithful to your God-given calling. Whatever God has called you to do and the responsibilities that he's given to you to give glory to God. See, that's what made John great. It wasn't about him. He had thousands of people who were following him, who were baptized by him. But he wasn't about building his kingdom. He was about building the kingdom of Jesus Christ. My prayer would be that would be the passion of each one of us. See, if you're really concerned about building your own kingdom and, and uh, having all the pleasures that this life has to offer and not concerned about Jesus, then you're following the path of destruction. You're following the ways of this world, which ends in emptiness and death and destruction. You might say, well, Mel, I'm not perfect. I, I, you know, I make a lot of mistakes. Well, God is an amazing God of grace. If there's one thing that I have learned in this series on the ordinary superheroes of the Old Testament, it's this, how amazing God's grace is. No matter how many times the Jews messed up, no matter how many times they fell into idolatry, God was always calling them back. You can still come back. You can still come back. That's the message for us that in our walk with Jesus Christ, that we would lift him up and glorify him. And if you've messed up, God's forgiveness is always there being offered to us. You can always come back. That's why his grace is amazing. I love the story of Thomas Edison. You know, he invented the light bulb. But before he invented the light bulb, he tried 2,000 different filaments that all failed. And he was asked one time, about how it felt to try 2,000 different filaments and failing 2,000 times. I love his quote. I'll put it up on the screen. He said this at the bottom. I didn't fail. I found 2,000 ways how not to make a light bulb. I love that. See, in our failures, in our sins, we find a way not to do that again. We can learn from that and grow stronger in our walk with God. See, as you live your life, don't make this error. And this is the error I want to warn you against. Elevating your desires and agenda above that of Jesus Christ. See, Philippians 2 says this, that we're to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, God's given us a plan. We're not to look out for ourselves only, but look out for the interests of others. That's exactly what led Jesus from heaven to the cross. And as you live your life today, I want to challenge you with th these three S's. One is this, sacrifice. To give ourselves totally to become who God wants us to be. John ultimately gave his life as a martyr for Christ. We're standing up against sin. Now, he had times of struggle. If you read about uh, this in Matthew 11, he sends his messengers while in prison to Jesus and says, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus tells the messengers, tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, and the poor hear the gospel.
being fulfilled in Jesus. In essence, Jesus saying, I'm the one, John. John had his moment of struggle, but remained faithful. He gave his life for what he knew was true. Here's another S that makes us great in God's eyes, is service, giving ourselves to others and investing our lives in those around us. I want to thank everyone here who's involved in serving others. A church would not be a church unless people stepped up from the goodness of their heart and served others. They do it in such amazing ways. Thank you. Thank you for doing that, and I hope you sense God's favor on your life as you do it. You might think no one notices, but God does. Thank you for all the ways you love others. You reach out to people who are hurting. You serve around the church. This is all about Jesus. That's why I entitled this service All for Jesus. That's why we end our service every week. And I'd love for you to say it with enthusiasm. All for him. It's all for Jesus. It's not for any one of us. We're doing this all for Jesus like Jesus told us to do. And that leads me to the third S of being great in God's eyes. Selflessness. Giving ourselves to Christ and his kingdom. That down deep, we know this life is not about me. It's not about my life and getting what I want. That down deep, you have a conviction that is greater than every other conviction of your life, that your life is dedicated to Jesus. And through all the trials and hardships of this life, your desire is to glorify God because believe me, you will one day stand in his presence and it will feel so good to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom that I have prepared for you. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Love to do this journey together with you in this church as we build God's kingdom, as we stay faithful to the mission that he's given to us. It is the most important mission of our lives. Nothing is greater. And in all the different compartments of our lives, as you look at your life and look at your accomplishments and your status and your possessions and your pedigree and your bank account and your family and your abilities and your power, all of those things, your influence, all of those things in your life, you have placed under the direction of Christ. It's all under his direction. Every compartment of your life. Ephesians 2 tells us this, and I love this verse. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We weren't saved by good works. But once we come to faith in Christ and believe that his death on the cross paid the price for our sins, we are now fulfilling what God created us for, to live a life that is like Jesus. We're created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them step by step. Here's step number two. Our time is running out. Greatness follows a humble view of ourselves in light of our awesome Savior. What does John say? The strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. If you want to say, wait a minute, John, you have thousands of followers. You're the most popular preacher in Israel. John had an amazing assessment, a correct assessment of himself and Jesus. He knew exactly who Jesus was. He said it, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who's been prophesied about for thousands of years, who takes away the sins of the world. That's who our Jesus is. He's awesome. 
And our task, like Matthew says, humble yourself like a child. If you do that, you'll be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Here's an error that people make, thinking that their accomplishments were not dependent upon a gracious God. I want you to know today, everything I own, everything I've done, is not ultimately an accomplishment made independently from a gracious God. It was all dependent on the God who gave me one breath after another. Couldn't have done any of it had it not been for a gracious God who allowed it. That should be our mindset. And like I pray every day, every morning when I get up, I have my desk, my Bible's open, it's sitting there every day. I start my time with, God, thank you. This day is a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift. Thank you for this new day. It's a wonderful gift. Every day is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you do not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything you have, gracious gift from God. I'm going to skip over this. Go to point three. It's this. Greatness comes when your greatest satisfaction is seeing Christ glorified, lifted up through you. People came to John and said, Hey, John, all of your disciples are going off to Jesus. Now, that's one of the most discouraging things any preacher can hear, right? <laughs> hey, you're, all your people are going off somewhere else. This is what he said. I love what he said, and I hope to mirror that in everything I encounter in my life because it's all about Jesus. John said, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must what? Decrease. I love that about John. He must increase. I must decrease. This is not about me. It's about Jesus. And an error people make is valuing acceptance by an unbelieving world over pleasing your almighty God. Let's be a church that seeks in everything we do. It's all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. The example of John the Baptist. Lord, it was all about you. It was all for you. He gave his life for the truths of your word. And Lord, I thank you that he was the greatest person that ever lived, according to you. Lord, may we try to see the value of being a witness and a light for you. Help us, God, to make our lives about pointing people to you, Jesus. It's all for you, Jesus. It's all for you. And we pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Let's all stand this. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your art and lead me in your love to those around me. Amen. We've elders up front who love to pray with you. Please greet one another and live this week. Offer him. God bless you. See you on the patio.